Welcome back to Allied, the podcast for everything you need to know about web and video accessibility. I'm your host, Elisa Lewis, and today we're lucky to be joined by Nat Lakowski to talk about neurodiversity. Nat is the Neurodiversity at IBM Global Business Resource Group co-chair. She is proudly neurodivergent and the parent of an autistic IT professional. With more than 10 years of experience coaching and mentoring neurodivergent individuals and their caregivers, Nat empowers acceptance culture by designing safe spaces to self-identify and by developing education and initiatives that improve trust and allyship. She is a public speaker and the organizer of global enablement via training events, guest speakers, and panel events, both within IBM and externally. Nat has represented IBM at a conference with the United Nations, highlighting the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion for neurodivergent professionals. Nat is also experienced with cross-identity engagements with PWD, PWDA, LGBTQ+, race, ethnicity, gender, and other identity groups. Nat is a 25-plus year veteran application developer for IBM Global Financing. I'm so glad you could join us today, Natalia. Let's jump in to this conversation. Thank you, Nat. I'd love to start off by learning more about neurodiversity and a little bit about your role at IBM. So for our listeners who may not know what neurodiversity is, can you give us sort of a broad definition? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Neurodiversity is a concept where neurological differences should be accepted and respected as any other part of the human variation. And it's really moving from a or from that medical or deficits model into a social and strength model. And neurodiversity includes differences like autism, ADHD, dyslexia, Tourette's, neurological differences that maybe you were born with or acquired over time. And through that, really moving this into a neural minority or another identity group. Uh, Through that, we're very conscious of language and icons. So most of the neurodivergent community, um, while you should always respect the individual, how they themselves true to label uh, themselves. Uh, As a default, most most people within the neurodivergent community prefer identity first language. So they would say, I'm an autistic person or I'm a neurodivergent person uh, and not use microaggressions like with or have. Um, It's not like I have a broken bone uh, or not. I'm not a person with femaleness. It's part of my identity. And some other language changes that we use is recognized instead of diagnosed or using high or low support needs to measure discreetly how much support somebody needs versus saying high or low functioning, because who really gets to decide what functioning is? They're not uh, always together. And there's also a lot of biases out there in trying to get recognized. Uh, My role within IBM, um, I'm proudly for the past, I guess, five or so years, been the neurodiversity at IBM Business Resource Group um, co-chair. Thank you. So I I actually wanted to, um, you led me right into my next question, which is 
how did the business resource group start? Um, and how has it grown over the five or six years that you've been there and been part of that? That's a really great story. Um, first, I want to add to my prior question is that uh, per the CDC, the statistics are one in 20 individuals you meet are neurodivergent in some way, and one in 50 are autistic. So knowing that that's such a large percentage of the population, it's really important that we have this support. So our business resource group actually started in 2015. One uh, IBMer was actually at the United Nations for World Autism Day and was able to see what other companies were doing uh, to increase their, and at the time it was focusing specifically on autism, um, individuals who are autistic trying to get them into the workforce. And our BRG was predominantly parents and caregivers. And then the magic happened, which is the neurodivergence within IBM started finding their own voices. So we wound up rebranding our BRG, which was originally called Autism as a Skill, to Neurodiversity at IBM, where we were embracing and working on the actual voices of neurodivergence who were IBM. And since then, uh, we've just continued uh, to grow and grow. Uh, we started with, I think, 50 members, and we're close to 2,000 now. So it's really exciting. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and now that we have a little bit of background about what neurodiversity is, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about um, your life experiences and how you came to be so passionate and making a difference um, with neurodiversity? Um, absolutely. I kind of grew up thinking that I was broken or that there was something wrong with me. How come I wasn't like everybody else? And it really was not until college that I was formally recognized as being neurodivergent. And it was that aha moment and that sense of relief and finding myself and trying to learn at that later stage in life, um, that self-advocacy and finding companies that, you know, like IBM that are looking to treasure wild ducks. You know, we can think of, you know, going back all the way in history, you know, the first people on the planet, right? They had shamans, they had people that could hear better or sense things better those skills and those skills now for innovation and thinking out of the box are really needed. Um, my work at, at Neurodiversity IBM really got sparked um, when I had my son uh, because he was also recognized as neurodivergent uh, early on in his childhood. And as he grew up, I saw the roadblocks being put in front of him from the elementary school to the university to internships. And at that same time, this neurodiversity movement was starting. So I was very eager to put my personal passions into something larger. Thank you for sharing that. It's, um, I find it interesting that sometimes it's easier to advocate for others and it kind of helps us realize that we need to advocate for ourselves and in certain scenarios too. So it's interesting to hear how um, watching your son grow up and, and face different roadblocks really kind of gave you a new perspective about yourself as well. 
That's very true. So back to IBM and neurodiversity at IBM, you know, we know that IBM is a very large company. I'm sure that there needs to be a strong collaboration um, and communication across all teams for the business resource group um, in order to achieve their goals. So namely, there needs to be proper accessibility training and education. And I'm curious how you ensure that all employees and teams are educated and understand neurodiversity. That's a great question. And I think it's always getting better and it's always improving. And it's really exciting as all diversity in itself is becoming more in the, in the center stage of all of our lives over the past, you know, past years. But it does take a lot of collaboration and a lot of synergy between talent and human resources and public relations and education and even our business units to really work on moving this needle forward. What we've done at IBM is that we do have uh, an internal training course called Neurodiversity 101. And we also have a digital badge called Neurodiversity Ally, where after you take the class, you have to do certain activities to show you're more than an ally. We have an internal website full of resources. We have multiple Slack communities for either neurodivergence and allies. We have some also for neurodivergent families and caregivers. But what's really exciting is that we have two Slack communities for IBMers who are neurodivergent themselves. And we use these as task forces. We use these for psychological safety, but it's not just that warm fuzzy. We can use this community to vet and create initiatives that our community, you know, like what do we wanna do for April? What do we wanna do with this? Um, and we've also, we host regular uh, speaking events where we bring in either internal or external people to share their thoughts. And we even have a neurodiversity presentation squad. So if there's a team within IBM that would like to be educated on this, we have a team of IBMers who are neurodivergent and we do like a informational roadshow um, for like lunch and learns and team meetings to really make that more personal. We have it recorded uh, also in over 10 languages, but there's a difference when you can have like a fireside chat or really connect with people. That's really great. Um, I, I guess that's one of the sort of benefits of being in such a large company is that you can really, um, create that, that task force and have a number of people to share their different perspectives. Um, I, I know you also shared some statistics earlier about just how many individuals are considered, um, or recognized as, as neurodiverse. And, um, you know, I think it's something that maybe is more common um, than people may realize. So it's very cool to have those dedicated communities um, and and be able to see the impact of that. So when you were starting your career, did you always know that you wanted to do work to advance acceptance for neurodivergent professionals? I know we talked a little bit about this and you self-identify as neurodivergent, and I'm curious what it was like for you at the beginning of your career, um, maybe when there weren't the same kind of resources as there are now, um, such as the business group at IBM. uh, I've been with IBM over 25 years, and I definitely am not the same person I was back then from a neurodiversity um, standpoint. 
um, I masked. I masked for many, many, many years, the same thing I had to do. Um, reading was not my forte or having sensory issues or trying to go back and ask somebody, can you explain this? Or having these wild, uh, wild ideas that I was afraid to share um, for not really knowing that, you know, are we really treasuring wild ducks and not having um, that confidence? And I think, again, going through seeing what my son had to go through, knowing that he, I'm trying to teach him to, you know, be his own self and self-advocacy. It was like, I really should be doing the same thing. And through that, I've kind of become not, not in a pedantic way, like mother bear um, of, of the group and trying to move this forward. And I've seen so many individuals be afraid or only share with me that they're neurodivergent and then join the safe space and maybe then get the courage to ask for an accommodation or, you know, and now be publicly speaking about it. And it's that, it's like coming out, right? You, you, this is an invisible identity that unless you have the strength in numbers to say, I am neurodivergent and you see others in that, in that workspace that you have the courage to come out as neurodivergent. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious if there was kind of a freedom when you did share that, particularly in your, in the workplace that you are neurodivergent. And um, if you're willing to share, was there any sort of shift in how you were perceived and maybe um, kind of being recognized as neurodivergent where you offered more acceptance or accommodation for some of these kind of outside the box ideas um, more so than you were previously? I think generally it was like, the reaction was like, oh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> like that, you know, like it, 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 it was there. And then I also had the courage to tell my teammates, you know, to have, you know, open communication to say, this can really help me succeed that, you know, my safe word is pineapple. So I get really, really passionate about things and that passionate is great and infectious, but sometimes not needed at that moment. So having a team member know to say pineapple and that lets me know I've gone too far and we can then get back on track. But I think it really aids communication across all the teams. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, it brings up an interesting concept. We at 3Play talk a lot about accommodations, particularly, you know, in the video accessibility space. But really, I think one thing we learned from COVID times and from everyone working remotely is that there are all sorts of accommodations, um, you know, needing a space at home or maybe a laptop instead of a, you know, desk with a, a big monitor, those are all considered or could be considered accommodations. And um, it's just kind of interesting that you met, you know, you mentioned your safe word, but there are all kinds of things that if we were comfortable and able to have more open communication with our team members about the different ways we learn and the different ways we process things, um, you know, at the end of the day, everyone really kind of benefits from whether you call it an accommodation or not, it, it is. Um, I'm curious 
you shared a little bit about your team, but I'm curious more broadly across IBM, what accommodations at work do look like? And specifically for neurodivergent professionals, what are some other accommodations that are common and could be beneficial? Yeah, I I think what you said just before that is really pivotal and ties into my answer, is that we really have to start moving the narrative, right? Let's move out of that medical model to say, what accommodations do you need? and instead change it to how can I help you succeed, right? Do we need to require somebody to have a medical letter to say, I can't sit near the elevator because it's going ping, ping all day long and distracting me? Do I need a medical letter to say, I need to have a break in the day when we offer breaks in the day to go pray or express express breast milk? You, You don't require, you know, that medical letter. And it also puts the burden on the individual. Um, There's huge biases in trying to get that golden ticket, that diagnosis paper. Uh, There's biases in trying to find a provider. If you have insurance, if that insurance takes an adult, if there's not a two-year wait list to see such a provider, or finally getting to the provider and then using a rubric or a test that has biases built into it because it was for nine-year-old white boys, you know, back in the early 90s. And you don't check enough boxes to be able to get that ticket. So we can really separate by asking the simple question, how do you work best? So some of these can easily be like asking for office location. Um, And many of these things cost nothing, right? Whether we need to um, sit facing the wall or down a quiet hallway or have active noise canceling headphones, or having office etiquette, things like not wearing strong perfume or being conscious of hallway conversations, really having open communication. If you have the freedom to tell your manager, you know, when you stopped by my office at, or when you slacked me or you messaged me at 10 to say, can we talk at two? I spent the next four hours rolling through my head that I forget a report or it's like, you know, your partner says, you know, when you get home, we need to talk. And you're like, did I forget an anniversary? Did I forget to put the cap on the toothpaste? Like, what is it? And you're not efficient in your day. Whereas if you can say, Hey, when you do that, it causes me a lot of anxiety. Could you instead say, let's talk at two o'clock about the whatever project or about, you know, that email that, you know, some, some context that can ease communication on both sides, reduce anxiety. I'm not going to be thinking all day or like having popcorn stuck in my teeth to be like, I can't focus on, on my work to really have radical candor. Um, you can have things like social contracting, like exactly, you know, talking about how we're going to do stuff, things about workload balancing or, you know, changing biases right? Not having an understanding that if I don't look you in the eye when I speak, that does not mean I'm not paying attention to you. Whether it's true or not, there's cultural biases in there. Let's just work together. And if you go through this open communication and radical candor and getting agendas for meetings, it really helps everyone. Yeah, I think you made some really great points. And it's so true. I think 
the word accommodation can also really trip us up. Um, and it's just different needs. Um, even, you know, preferences, I think you talked about, um, you know, location of a desk in the office. Those are things that are so simple and for a variety of reasons, people may, you know, have different preferences and it's, uh, it can make a big difference. I, I think you shared some really great examples. Um, I'm wondering if there are any other specific examples that you can think of specifically for a remote environment or even a hybrid environment, which, you know, has of course become very commonplace and very popular, um, sort of in this ongoing pandemic. Yeah, the, the pandemic has actually brought a silver lining to the whole world because pre a lot of neurodivergents, not all, prefer to work at home where they can control their own lighting, their own you know, experience of how they go through the day. And a lot of companies prior to COVID did not embrace the whole work from home idea. Oh, you're gonna, you know, you're not gonna get your work done. And that's really shined a light on a lot of benefits to working from home, whether you're, you know, have a long commute, you're not as stressed for the day, you know, you, you can, you know, take care of your, you know, family better, all of those things. Uh, some of the work from home things, uh, IBM actually had a work from home pledge that we posted. Uh, things like I pledge, you know, not to always be camera ready or to be understanding if you are not camera ready. Um, if it is a client call that the cameras will be on, we will include that in the meeting notice so you can be, you know, aware of that and going through those, you know, those simple things. It's really about thinking about that sensory diet. You almost think of what's on the menu of that person um, of the sensory um, coming in. If you're in the office, do you really need to walk to a conference room and change that sensory experience? to work with others, um, even in an agile workspace. Uh, we had one individual that just had an extra wall available to him. So when he felt the need to work in a quiet space, he just rolled the extra wall and you know, that was the signal that he was working or letting people know, this is when you can slack me, this is when you could stop by my desk and this is when you can email me. Some companies have put little like red, yellow, green dots on cube walls so you can see before you interrupt somebody, you know, if, if they're deep in thought and they, you know, you can, you know, send them an email versus that. Um, some of it is simple as, you know, altering your work hours, you know, so you can come in a half hour later and stay later to avoid the stress of the commute or if you have to drop a kid off, whatever it might be. It's also a perfect time now with COVID redesigns in physical spaces to think about that. Put, you know, put it, don't have doors near the bath or offices near the bathroom or think, you know, busy places. Think about it. You know, can you control your own lighting, your own temperature? I agree with you that it really is a silver lining that came out of COVID. Um, I know a lot of companies and a lot of individuals who had the experience where they really weren't allowed to work remotely, or they had to have a specific reason like a doctor's appointment or, a, you know, um, family, um, a family reason that they needed to work from home and kind of felt like they could only ask in these certain scenarios and whatever the case may be. And it's interesting just how quickly 
when push comes to shove, we were able to all shift um, and in many cases be successful. Yeah, and in some um, cases, the, the hybrid model can cause even more stress to have doing this one day and doing like, is it better by week? And really to be able to communicate that. Right? A hybrid could be even, for me, more stressful than you know one or the other. It's reducing sometimes the sense of change. Yeah, I think a sense of change and also uncertainty. I think that your examples about setting expectations of what it what is expected and what's okay um, to be on camera or not be on camera or certain scenarios or situations. I, you know, I've heard from a lot of people just in the work space, things like Slack, um, you know, oh, it's Slack is pinging all day. And, you know, you feel like with these kind of instantaneous type of messages, if you don't answer, people are going to think that you're away from your computer or not working, but can we set an expectation that actually it's okay to have focus time? Um, you know, and if something's really urgent, we'll find you. And otherwise, you know, maybe it's put in an email or maybe you can put your Slack on do not disturb and that will be okay as well. It's, um, it's funny that you mentioned Slack uh, because there's biases, not only in physical interaction, but sometimes in the IT tools that we use. And we had an instance where Slack had rolled out a feature that was not welcomed by our neurodiversity community. And we were able to, through our task force, through our voices, through having our executives listen to us, we were able to be connected to Slack directly and say, are you looking at the neurodivergent persona when you're rolling out features? Can we turn this off? And it really became a great conversation where we had a Slack champion you know, meet with our IBM neurodivergent community and say, what questions do you need? And they, you know, we had a one-on-one -on -one education session with them where we could ask questions like, how can we reduce that sensory noise? How can we set timers on Slack to have focus time? And using the tools, and it was a really amazing experience to have not only that collaboration, because now Slack doesn't drive me crazy, um, but also to have that within 24 to 48 hours, we already had the connection and the meeting set up that IBM heard our voices and took action. It wasn't just, oh, okay, we'll think about it. It was really, really moving and powerful. Yeah. Yeah. That's really powerful and, and says a lot about IBM and, um, you know, it's not something that was pushed under the, the rug, um, but that it was really heard. Um, and that says a lot about the resource community that you've put together as well. Um, I'm curious if you could share what managers and team members could do to be more aware and be more of an ally and more accommodating to neurodivergent professionals. That's a great question, and I'm going to do something that I really don't like when people do is answer a question which, with another question, which is, how would you answer that question if you were trying to be an ally for women or any other diversity group? And answering my own question, it's really about looking at neurodivergence as just another chapter in your diversity story. Um, this is not just the warm fuzzy of people feeling accepted. While that's super, super important, um, it actually has been proven 
uh, by other companies working in this space that you can get more revenue, you can have higher productivity, um, and there's lots of studies out there. And this can also um, help with the skills gap. So what a manager or a team member can do is really to work on that sense of unconscious bias and learn about microaggressions and ask the questions from the community itself. Think about your stereotyping, right? If I say an autistic person, you know, people think Sheldon from Big Bang, right? A white cisgender male who's really good in IT, where it might be somebody not in IT, might be in accounting or sales. It might be a woman. It might be, you know, a person of color. It could be anybody in any role and in any stage um, of their career to really think about neurodiversity as a skill and not something, not a deficit or a challenge to be overcome. You're trying to get more innovation. You want new thoughts. You need talent. Well, folks are there. And unfortunately, due to a lot of unconscious bias, the unemployment rate and underemployment rate of neurodivergence is, I think I saw one study and it was like, you know, close to 40% um, that cannot get past the interview because they don't smile the right way, or they don't shake your hand with the right force. Or you may want to talk about the weather the ice, to break the ice, and that's not, you know, they're there for the interview. Or during the interview, it was too bright or too noisy. So what are blockers to there is to really think about the culture change, right? What, do, what can you do to change that environment? Uh, sometimes I use a thought experiment in uh, our education sessions, and I'll do it with you really quick. I'd like for you to think of a bird and give me its name. Just think of a bird. What kind of bird are you thinking of? A robin. Okay, so perfect. I'm a penguin. I don't fly. I'm socially awkward on land, but I'm an excellent swimmer and I can survive the Antarctic and I can raise my chick without a nest. But if you put me in a rainforest, I'm not going to do well. And if you as a robin come to the Antarctic, you're not going to do well either. But both of us are birds. Neither of us are broken. Neither of us need to be cured or trained to do something that we're not. I love that. I think that's really simple and, and so powerful. I've used that example. I'm also a scout leader. So I, I teach disabilities and uh, diversity awareness to youth. And I, I always have one kid in the class that goes, and the ostrich too. So <laughs> I love working with the kids. Cause, and, and that's exactly it. And sometimes they get it more easily than us as adults. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I read that the neurodiversity at IBM motto is nothing about us without us. And I'm wondering if you can explain what this motto means to you and to your business resource group. Thank you very, very much. That motto is at the core um, of all of our work. And it's basically that a well-intentioned ally can do more harm than good. And if you're speaking about any community, you have to take the voice and the opinion of those from within that community more so than an ally. We do need synergy. 
So neurodivergents need to work with neurotypicals, which is somebody who's not neurodivergent. Our community as a whole is neurodiverse, which means we have both neurodivergent and neurotypicals together. But you have to ask us, you know, would you run a women's conference and only invite men? And to really swap that out with any other um, diversity group. And this is why these safe spaces are so important because you may have people that are still in the closet about being neurodivergent and their voices are so critical. Um, and the same way that you can, you know, you can look at any other organization or charity and look at if they have members from that community in a leadership position, are they looking for a cure? You know, what are, you know, are they doing genetic research? What is the purpose of it? And really fo focusing back on nothing about us without us is I'm the expert in me. Now, granted, if you've met one neurodivergent, you've met one neurodivergent because everyone is so different. But we as a community have to control and help educate on our community. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I know we're getting close to our time together, but I also wanted to ask when leading neurodiversity initiatives, you often advocate for moving away from awareness toward acceptance and advancement. What does this shift mean and what does it look like in practice? Thank you. It's one of my favorite questions. Um, awareness is really passive and it could still lead to discrimination, right? You could be aware that somebody different than you moved on your street. And it just ends there. You're aware, but as long as you stay over there, I'm okay with that. You know, we think about, you know, an autism awareness walk. Well, what are we really doing to help embrace that identity, right? A lot of things with awareness go for medical things. Like we made Breast Cancer Awareness Month is, is actually, no, it's October now. Right? <laughs> um, or we have these different things for, think, for people to be aware. And if we move out of that, move to acceptance, it's where you're not passive anymore. You're actively learning. You're actively reaching out to engage that community. And even if we swap out some diversity words, like would we have Women's, women's Awareness Day, right? I think everybody at this point knows what autism is. Neurodiversity is a new term. So you have to start with awareness of what it is, but don't, don't stay there too long. So acceptance is that phase where you are learning and you're taking actions to show you're an ally. And the last stage of advancement is really where we're moving to, into a place of pride, moving into a place of empowerment, moving to a place where neurodivergent voices are not only brought in at the same entry level job, where they're given the same opportunities to be team leaders, to, I don't know, speak with you today. Um, so it's really exciting. And everybody's in their own place on their own journey. So there's cultural differences, but we kind of hold these three A's of you have to start at awareness, but quickly move to acceptance. And when you can really move to advancement. Thank you so much. Um, before we wrap up, I'm curious if there's anything else you would like to share with our listeners today or any other um, thoughts that we didn't cover in our conversation already. I would just say start having the conversation and 
you're going to make mistakes. Just like if I talk to a community that I'm not familiar with, have that sense of empathy and ask before you assume and really think about neurodiversity as an underrepresented group and what you can do to celebrate these voices. And if you are neurodivergent yourself, think about coming out because we can use all of the help and all of the support and it's going to change our culture for the future. Absolutely. Thank you. And for our listeners who want to learn more about neurodiversity or who want to connect with you, um, where can they find you online? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm happy uh, to connect. We also have a lot of resources uh, online. So if you uh, look up neurodiversity at IBM, um, you'll find a, a video playlist and lots of uh, resources and happy to keep the conversation going. Perfect. Thank you so much. I also want to add that through Disability In, there's an employer's roundtable. So we have companies coming together every month to share best practices. So that's another great resource. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Allied. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest on accessibility, visit www.3playmedia.com backslash allied podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.